0: Hello and thank you for joining us. This is the fourth of four Climate Bite episodes we recorded as part of this year's Art Plus Climate equals change 2019 Festival by Climart. This makes it the last Climate Bites, which is quite bittersweet. We've learned so much from these four episodes. From the excellent guests both inside the University of Melbourne faculty and outside, the excellent moderator who wrangled it all together, Dr. Renee Beale. From the Royal Society of Victoria. We learned about water, about food, about fashion, and lastly today, how we interact with nature through the lens of the law. I'd like to take a moment to thank Climart for making it possible to record these sessions and release them as podcasts for you, meaning if you weren't there you didn't miss out, and even if you were there you can re-listen and pick up on more that you missed anytime you want. And so without further ado, Here's episode 4 of 4 of our Climate Bites mini-series. Enjoy!
1: Hello, my name is Bronwyn Johnson and I'm the director of Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2019 Festival, presented by Climart. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which the festival takes place and acknowledge the Wurundjeri people on whose lands the program you're about to hear was staged and recorded. Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2019 is a socially engaged festival of ideas, exhibitions and events. Presenting over 30 curated exhibitions at leading museums and galleries in Melbourne and regional Victoria, The 2019 festival considers ideas and concepts around art and activism, community engagement, transition and accelerated action on climate change. In this festival, artists, curators, scientists and policy experts envisage a world where we protect and care for our earth, from the river systems, oceans and lands to the air we breathe. As we know, actions to reduce global warming will only arise from communities based upon fairness, indigenous knowledge, cooperation and through valuing the arts and sciences Let's join now with the artists, curators, scientists and policy experts through this festival program, Climate Bites, at the Living Pavilion at the University of Melbourne. Welcome to Climate Bites, a program
2: presented as part of Climart's Art Plus Climate Equals Change 2019 Festival. My name is Renee Beale and I'm the producer of Climate Bites. So these are lunchtime info-packed discussions with experts on water, food, fast fashion and nature. So hopefully you'll take away some practical knowledge and some tips to bite back against our climate emergency. This is actually the last of our Climate Bites discussion series and we're going to talk about nature today. So Climate Bites is being held on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and I wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners. The Wurundjeri are this region's first scientists, patiently observing and sometimes gently shaping the ecosystem they so effectively care for for thousands of years. As a scientist who studied at this great university, I am humbled by the deep knowledge of the Wurundjeri and other Indigenous communities, and I feel incredibly grateful for their generosity in reaching out to educate and work with scientists in how we can best care for country together. Now to nature. Humans delight in and find themselves in awe of nature. The soaring kestrel, a rugged mountain range. The beauty of flowers, birds and beetles. Yet humans have plundered nature's riches. And according to the recently released UN Biodiversity Report brought more than one million further species to the brink of extinction worldwide. In Australia, the pressures of climate change, pollution, land clearing and invasive species place more than 1,800 plant and animal species and woodlands, forests and wetlands at risk of extinction. What role can the law play in protecting nature? What role can individuals and communities play? Instead of well-trodden ancient Greek philosophical views that nature is all around us, but somehow separate from us, how can we change or reshape our beliefs so that we acknowledge that humans are part of nature? Nature is within us. Nature includes us. Care for ourselves, therefore, must then include care for our environment. Nature creates music for those who listen. How can we hear the lyrics and lend our voices to protect nature's song? Joining us today for this illuminating discussion on Thursday the 16th of May and to help unpack some of the questions are Professor Lee Godden and Professor Mark Elgar. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of a bio of our our panel today so that you know who you're asking questions of and what their expertise is. So Professor Mark Elger is Professor of Evolutionary Biology and Animal Behaviour at the University of Melbourne. His research explores sexual selection, social behaviour and chemical communication, primarily in birds and insects. He has been investigating how air pollution may be interfering with insects' capacity to communicate and ability to thrive. Professor Lee Godden is the Director of the Centre for Resources, Energy and Environmental Law at the University of Melbourne. Her work engages with public interest issues such as the impact of climate change on environmental law and water law, land rights and economic development for Indigenous communities. So to start us off today, I'll ask the first question of the panel, but if you'd like to ask a question, please just raise your hand and we'll fit you into the discussion as we're going along. Also, I've been asked by Mark, who's doing the podcast, he'll run over and make sure he captures your question with his microphone. Now, scientists are now starting to discover incredible evidence about plants actually communicating as well as, you know, we we kind of are aware that animals have their own language, but plants are, are something that perhaps we haven't necessarily been aware that are actually doing a lot of chatter amongst themselves. Is some of that research actually filtering in into environmental law at all or is that something that's sort of not quite there yet?
3: I think this is an important way of breaking down some of the stereotypes about the way in which law plays a role in addressing issues such as climate change, its engagement on environmental questions of protection and so on. Because in fact there is research uh, by my colleague uh, Afshan Akabari about how law might tap into those ideas of plants communicating and this represents a part of a change where law is very much engaged in thinking about how it manifests in a a direct spatial time and scale sense in the environment. So this has been part of work that is not only there in environmental law, but some of my colleagues in the law school actually deal with the question of law and sound. And so we have had a lot of work come through around, for example, law and aesthetics and how that informs our understanding of concepts that are embedded in law, such as property law, such as giving effect to uh, environmental protection through world heritage. So I'd really like to have questions that engage with this wider understanding that we are starting to uh, bring to law, which is that we've been deaf for so long to lots of voices that we're now just starting to understand. Does anyone have any questions for Lee on that? Or will I allow that to
2: percolate in your minds while I build another kind of complex layer on that, which is some of Mark Elger's work, understanding communication within insect and bird populations. Do you want to start speaking a little bit about some of your work, particularly as it relates to humans' impact on communication within insect and bird populations?
4: So it's certainly true that there's a great deal of sound kicking around that we may or may not hear, and some sound which actually interferes with our ability to hear. For example, uh, vehicles going past on on the roadsides. And that has implications for a range of, of particularly animals that communicate by um, uh, by sounds, uh, particularly um, birds that find that they're unable to hear each other in environments which are particularly noisy. Um, and th- there's a lot of research kicking around, uh, or I should say research that's been undertaken, that, that demonstrates that either birds will, for example, uh, moder- moderate the sounds that they make to compensate for the background noise uh, or in other instances they're not able to thrive particularly well. One of the things that members of my group work with is another form of or another modality of communication which is smell. As humans this is not something that we appreciate particularly well because we're actually not very good at um, detecting smells except the most obvious kind but for an insect flying into, for example, a meadow with a large number of flowers, uh, it's faced with an extraordinary challenge of being able to detect the odour of particular flowers that are suited for pollinating, for example, by that insect. So there is a cacophony of odours out there. We're not able to detect chemical signals or chemical odours as a form of communication different from sound. Is that You can hear me simply by the vibrations that go through the air, which your eardrums pick up. But if we communicated by smell, for example, uh, if, uh, if I was wearing a perfume, then the only way that you would be able to detect that odor is if those perfume molecules actually interacted with the receptors that you find in your nose. In other words, the communication is quite different because it actually involves a physical entity moving through the environment. And one of the problems, uh, an emerging interest amongst very few scientists at the moment is how our polluting the air is having an effect on the ability of insects to communicate. And this operates in two ways. The pollutants in the air actually degrade the odour so that it doesn't reach its intended receiver. And the other damage, or the other form of pollution, is that the small particles that are found in the polluted air will aggregate on the body of insects, including on their antennae, and that makes it difficult for them to detect those odors as well. We think that this may be a part of the contributing factor that's responsible for the massive decline in number of insects that we see globally. And we might tend to think that this is an urban issue, but don't forget these pollutants, these air pollutants, travel great distances. And, so, uh, and this, so this would explain why we're seeing declines in insect numbers both in rural and urban areas, but also in what might otherwise seem like a pristine environment.
0: Is it at all reasonable to think that if we have a massive decline in the amount of insects, that we can expect a functioning biosphere? or is that really naive to think we can survive without insects?
4: The question is, should we care? And um, for those of you who work or have been affected by malaria um, or don't like getting bitten by mosquitoes, I would imagine that you would feel good about the elimination of of uh, mosquitoes. Uh, I certainly do, even though I'm quite passionate about um, insects. But more broadly, um, they are massively important. So there are two groups of Insects that allow us to eat vegetables um, to some extent bees and uh, to perhaps a greater extent a group of flies called hoverflies Uh, They're important because they pollinate you don't get tomatoes unless your flowers have been pollinated So no insects no uh, no pollinators and there are heaps of other insects that have what we call these We sometimes refer to them as ecosystem engineers And they're critically important for a range of functioning activities. So, yes, absolutely we should care about insects, even though uh, they don't necessarily have the charm of the charismatic megafauna that people um, get very excited about. But they probably have more impacts on life than panda bears. So
1: are they able to adapt to to climate change?
4: It depends a little bit on the kind of insect that you're talking about. Um, But the ability to uh, adapt. to when you say adapt to change to um, uh, changing circumstances depends on the generation time of insects so most insects have a very short generation time so flies for example will go through from egg to adult and die you know within weeks other insects that many of you may have encountered some of the beautiful stick insects for example um, will live a lot longer honeybee queens live for about 30 years I think so, or can live up to that long. Um, so, being an insect doesn't necessarily mean that you're short-lived. But for bees, in particular, the ability of them to adapt to change is 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 actually tougher because their generation times are quite slow. A whole nest has to grow into a stage where they're starting to produce reproductives, and those reproductives. In fact, it becomes even more complicated than that because the workers that might be affected by the environmental change, the genetics of changing those becomes more complicated because they aren't actually reproducing. But that's... I guess I'm just saying it's more complicated. But because insects are short-lived, the tendency of people to think is, yes, they will adapt very quickly. And some can and some can't. But the other thing, too, is that to adapt, you require the genetic variation, the variants that would allow that kind of change to take place.
3: Can I also just come in on a point of intersection with law there? Because many of the endangered species lists and so on typically downplay the importance of insects and you were talking about megafauna. What we have in um, many of our existing laws is a bias if you like towards megafauna and protection of megafauna and so updating and ensuring that we give attention to a wide range of biodiversity is a really important thing that we're just starting to think about, thinking about habitats rather than just species in a whole range of laws. So those are at least the beginnings of a recognition that we we, um, need to take into account insects.
4: There's actually, if I might, just add a complication to that too. So uh, there's only, I think, globally a single wild population of dromedary camels and they're found in australia so uh, a massively endangered species globally is actually a pest environmentally in australia and the same goes for rabbits so uh, in certain parts of europe they're considered to be endangered uh, foxes are endangered in britain so so it becomes really complicated i think particularly in illegal context and my view is the easiest way to getting around that is to stop thinking about species think at habitat and those parts of issues cease to be in effect. So yes, uh, looking at uh, brumbies is a, a wonderful thing but a very modern thing in Australia but from a plant perspective, You know, if you heard a plant scream every time it got crushed by a a Brumby, you would probably have a slightly different view about their appropriateness in, uh, for example, um, mountain ranges.
3: Yes, thanks for the question. Um, Certainly, the idea of whether free trade agreements will impact on uh, biodiversity protection has been an issue raised uh, quite, quite frequently. There are protections in relation to certain free trade agreements, and you have to look at the detail of the actual agreements. Uh, There were encouraging moves around some of the Asia-Pacific free trade agreements to actually include environmental sustainability uh, as core conditions in there. But we certainly need to be alive to the idea that international law and trade agreements need to be cognizant of impacts around biodiversity protection, climate change impacts and so on. And there are moves it's yet I would say still tentative to bring together things like the World Trade Organization and intellectual property regimes into more into sync with an understanding of the need for environmental protection and protection of biodiversity I wanted to
2: bring up something that I know you've got you've got interesting views on and and, and I'd like us to discuss that actually around recent moves in some of the well actually in uh, New Zealand but also in some of the northern hemisphere to begin to award personhood status like personhood legal status to things like rivers and natural environments and there have been some calls for that to start occurring in Australia can you explain what that actually means in terms of law and and why or why not that might be a good idea or what an alternative might be that might be better than that?
3: Okay, thank you. And yes, there's been a, an absolute explosion in this idea of legal rights for nature. And one of the things I'd like to introduce is that mo- much of those thinking or much of the thinking around legal personhood actually is a translation from indigenous concepts because the idea of a living entity and what is known in law as personhood actually is embedded in many indigenous philosophies. And the example that gave rise to it in New Zealand, in fact, arose out of a process of settlement and compensation for Maori people as part of the Waitangi settlement process. So what has been picked up and popularized does not, in my view, give particular provenance to the contribution of indigenous peoples in this um, idea of personhood. And I would say within Australia, we have had that concept for at least 20 years. We just don't recognize it as such. It's called native title because native title recognises indigenous relationships with land and waters, and it recognises that connection as part of a relationship with entities that are animate and living, and, for example, with dreaming stories and dreaming tracks that are seen as having... Personality, in the sense that um, we understand it in Western terms. I also have some concerns about the idea, the very individualistic idea of legal rights for nature that um, again reinforces a very western philosophical position around rights and I think we need to start yes embracing these ideas for legal rights but thinking collectively about how we bring protections and often um, particularly in situations for example in Colombia and in India where we've seen legal rights for rivers often these are last ditch measures where environmental degradation is at such an extreme example that courts step in. I think that we need to see a much more broadly based approach that deals with, um, for example, planning. And the thing that many people don't realise is that the New Zealand examples around forestry, rights for forest, personhood for forests and rivers, is actually aligned to... um, incorporation with co-management regimes uh, between Māori and uh, Pākehā, and also that it feeds into broadly based statutory planning uh, around, for example, the Resource Management Act. I think that's where we need to go instead of a a very isolated focus on legal rights.
5: Hi, I'm from New Zealand, and um, I think that's absolutely right. And I think that the ability of... being a recognition of the Whanganui River as an entity is enabled by a growing understanding by the wider population of the Māori way of thinking about and caring for the land and being one with and I think that change needs to happen throughout the wider culture for such a thing to be able to function. I think it touches, begins to touch on the problematic of if we need to embrace a way of thinking in which humans don't own anything, how does that sit in a legal context and I think that it it ushers in a really interesting transition for us.
4: Can I ask a a naive question? It seems to me that we already have in a legal system legal rights for non-human entities in the form of buildings. So, for example, buildings some buildings have um, restrictions placed on whether they can be knocked down, although some governments do that anyway. I'm <laughs> showing my age, I suppose, and having lived in Queensland. But, but for example, I, I suspect the building behind us has certain rights attributed to it How does that differ, then, from natural... Would that be a model that one could use?
3: In fact, the legal rights for nature draws on long-standing ideas around corporations and non-human entities such as companies, which we have accepted have certain... (laughs) Powers and duties and rights—that is, they can be exercised by humans on behalf of those entities. So we're very familiar with company structures, with with various forms of, le- I would say, legal protections in place through the legal system. So that's another reason for us um, to think about whether the legal rights model is—and certainly, it's the the personhood model actually goes back to a corporate structure and the recognition of corporate ideas goes back for example to the church. (laughs) So we've long recognized um, human constructions uh, both physical and institutional as having rights. So it's very belated that we come to that understanding in respect of nature
6: laws are in place when, for instance, this offset plan is is used to justify going ahead with a, a dangerous project, and then there's no money to actually, you know, fulfil that. Where is the legal recourse for us to be sure that there's going to be enough money if they do decide that they can't afford the programmes that they've promised or whatever? Thank you.
3: Yeah, no... Look, being an environmental lawyer is often a depressing (laughs) occupation (laughs) because while we've seen some significant advances, we also, according to the swing and thrust of policy platforms, also see quite a reversal of protections in particular ways. We also, in Australia have, which is where I think you're going with the Tarkine, have a very complex federal governance system so that sometimes you, particularly with um, threatened species listing, see a um, distinction between federal protections and state-based protections. So there is a... A known problem um, here with, for example, the Flora and Fauna Guarantee Act being out of sync with the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act. And also, there are surprisingly limited powers uh, to protect uh, species against project development and so on. And I'm looking at the the beautiful work on restoration here. And we're only now starting to see um, widespread use of what are called offsets, uh, restoration offsets in relation to project development. Now, that is very much a compromise uh, where we still let the development go ahead, but we then say okay, you put conditions on that you must restore so much. Maybe not even on the site, often it will be um, off-site. And I've done a lot of work on biosequestration and climate change and I've also looked quite critically at the idea of offsets and whether it will actually enhance biodiversity in the longer run. Can I
6: ask just a follow-up one? Do we need to change the Constitution, given it was written at a time when, obviously, we didn't have these serious... But, but really, I mean, why why can't we get the laws if we all kind of... You know, if there's so much evidence, what's what's holding that? Is it the Constitution?
3: Well, in part, but it's, it's much more complex than that. The Constitution doesn't even have a right for the Commonwealth Government to legislate on environment. That was achieved after a very difficult process Sorry, Mark, I'm some space. Um, The Tasmanian Dam project was pivotal in that the High Court found that the Commonwealth could use what are called indirect heads of power to legislate for the environment. So really in Australia, the strong impetus for environmental law came after... the the Tasmanian dams case, where the Commonwealth started to enact a whole raft of environmental protections and that was then picked up and um, state governments and so on did a lot more work in that area. But it's a very difficult process to amend our constitution. You need a two-thirds majority in two-thirds of the states. We haven't successfully amended the constitution except for oh the latest one was 1967 where we recognized indigenous peoples as citizens of australia and that was 1967.
1: so like the murray darling basin which is in you know a number of different states so from a legal point of view it's going to be impossible
3: <laughs> yeah um i i was on the academy of science um, group that did the report on the um, fish kills in uh, and around the Menindee Lakes on the the Darling River. And one of the, the complications, yes, is federalism and how we work across what are entrenched state and territory interests to achieve. coordinated governance, and that is before we even get down to the variety of stakeholder interests at play in the Murray-Darling Basin. I have argued long and hard against water markets because of the ecological damage of moving water out of catchments and disentangling water from its location in place. I'm not a big advocate of water markets and I think we're now starting to see some of those difficulties manifest in what I call major ecological externalities that are not captured and provided for in our water market governance models. But on the same token, we've also come a long way in terms of returning environmental flows. The challenge will be for us to maintain the momentum in returning environmental, at least some minimal levels of environmental sustainability to the Murray-Darling Basin.
4: I was going to say that, I mean, I think you, the comment about water markets is interesting. It's not an area that I'm familiar with but it links to some degree to the offsets that you were talking about where you damage some place and you can pay for it by restoring another place. And the reality is that the ability to restore natural environments is actually very difficult and much more expensive probably than people necessarily recognize. And I think it stems in part from our belief that somehow we're generally very good at managing things. After all, we're humans, that's what we do. And uh, there, there's this quite, I think at times, um, unjustified optimism that you can just do an offset and it'll be fine. Just grow a few trees and, uh, and, and there you are, you've got a, a brand new community. But but actually it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know, you need to bring in a whole lot of insects, you need to bring in a whole range of things. Um, a, a very interesting study I published quite recently was looking at the fauna on rooftops in urban gardens. And people are trying very hard to create these kind of um, uh, plant communities on on, uh, high rise rooftops and elsewhere. And um, what they found is that very quickly these endemic plants that they had in, in their in their gardens were very rapidly taken over by a range of much more weedy plants that uh, that ended up doing well. What that means, of course, is that you can't be a gardener like me, like, you know, you sort of put all the natives out and hope everything will work well. It doesn't, actually. It requires a lot more uh, nurturing. So I think we have this sense that, that we're able to manage these things and we can turn a uh, a damaged area into something that approaches something pristine. We can't do that. We can get something. It may not even be close to what it is, but it would certainly be better than uh, than an unmanaged area. But I think that we need to recognise that. And, and if you recognise that, then you realise that this kind of offset is not an equivalence at all, whether it's in water or whether it's in other environments.
2: Just wanted to pick up on a couple of. Things around water and also um, private property. Actually, so we had a, we had one of our climate bites was about water, and and there was some discussion around around over 80% of waterways actually have privately owned properties that back onto them in Australia, and as part of the kind of law, if you own a property that backs onto waterways, then you're able to actually use that water for kind of free, you know, within re- reasonable use, I think, is the is the term, which is kind of a bit vague. Do you want to make comment on that? Yeah.
3: Actually, I teach water law, sorry. <laughs> um, it depends what you're talking about. Actually, uh, it's a complex situation with rivers and streams and watercourses under sorry to do technical um, under Torrens system most of those are actually vested in the crown so there is not actually a private property right unless you have land title to what's known as the middle of the river or stream to actually take what are called riparian rights out of the stream and most of those were given in the middle of the 19th century uh, so in some rural areas, particularly in, in New South Wales, Tasmania, and a bit up here in central Victoria and so on, there are what are known as riparian rights. That This is land abutting the rivers where that reasonable use doctrine of riparian rights uh, might still operate. Here in Victoria, the courts have held that that um, has given way to statutory allocation processes um, under a series of um, legislation and our current Water Act actually has extinguished riparian rights. So for people, you know, they feel they may have uh, rights. There are existing what are called stock and domestic uses. So if you know uh, travelling and or you want to access those stock and domestic rights, now, now those are meant to be very, as the name suggests, very confined rights. So those those still exist. I understand that our water authorities have an eye to perhaps bringing those into the allocation net as well, so it will be an interesting question. but and I'm
6: not quite sure where it should fall, to, hopefully to both of you, but when we're looking at law and when we're looking at questioning, for instance, a decision like the approval for, you know, the, the water bits of the Adani, because they basically forced the CSIRO to push through this really dodgy, vague claim that the coalition could vaguely rely on. Do we have rights to scientific truths? Like, you know, things that are well understood, and yet we're having so much misleading information around.
4: So, does anyone believe in gravity? (laughs) I do. I don't think gravity is something that you believe in. I think gravity is something that absolutely happens. I think it's astonishing that people are asked, do you believe in climate change?
3: The first thing I'd probably say is that it depends which bit of the law you're talking about. Now, um, in terms of a minister being approving a, a mine project, that is part of our democratic system. So with our democratic system and ministerial responsibility for decision making that is integral to our political our democratic system and thus our legal system but in terms of thinking about then how communities intersect with that system that we have developed where there is ministerial responsibility through through the government processes which is an elect which is you know Uh, sits on a democratic election process. Um, There are ways in which you uh, can challenge the decision making. Uh, For example, the water baselines. I know ACF um, did actually bring scientific evidence about the uncertainty in relation to how much water would be taken, for example, by the mine project. This type of evidence is regularly presented in many environmental cases. The question then becomes whether it is then accepted by the court as having in some way vitiated the the proper decision-making processes. So the legal test is... I'm not going to go into the technical details, but it's it's quite a narrow technical test. And typically, if the minister has done all the steps, looked at the information, considered it, there is not a requirement to look to the substantive science what we might call a me- on the merits, uh, under much of the existing law that is there to challenge government decision-making. So the tests are very narrow, and provided the procedural steps are taken, then the Minister's decision will stand. Even if you do get a judicial review challenge upheld, In most instances, what happens is that the the court says there's a return to the minister to make the decision according to law. We do have some tribunals, like VCAT, and the um, Land and Environment Court in New South Wales that offers a different model. It reviews on the evidence. It is in a position to remake the decision having regard to the evidence. But this is a very specialised jurisdiction. It's not the general court process. So once you move from those specialist tribunals into the um, general court system, then you're much more into that narrow model of if the steps have been taken, then that decision stands. I'm
2: going to just... Just for the last little bit of our discussion, move move a little bit um, from that. So, I'm going to move into a little bit of a different area of nature, just to just to finish us off. So, I just wanted to move into you know go back to us sort of paying attention to nature. Uh, and move into some of the stuff that I know Mark's working on, and and I think this will hook in nicely with some of your research around art and aesthetics and law. So around um, bio-inspiration and biomimicry and paying attention to nature and what humans can learn from nature. Do you want to talk about some of your work, Mark, first?
4: One of the challenges of being an evolutionary biologist whose interests are largely esoteric is that you know that any of the discoveries that you might make will excite you and perhaps half a dozen other people, uh, but the world is not going to blink if, uh, if you don't make those discoveries, because they're esoteric and they're, they're satisfying curiosity. So as a biologist in that area, it's often a bit of a challenge to justify what you do to the general public who typically say, well, as a taxpayer, what's in it for me? Um, and most people in my area have moved more towards the kind of conservation area as saying, well, our understanding of natural systems will help conservation, and, and some of that's true and some of it's probably a little bit of wishful thinking. One of the areas that we've started working in in my group is uh, really does have genuine um, uh, impacts on, on human activities. And I suppose in some ways adds value to our natural systems and in particular to understanding natu- natural systems. So, um, uh, colleagues and I have set up a, an initiative funded by the university, uh, which is trying to bring together people from engineering, from architecture, uh, from biology, and elsewhere to think about natural solutions to essentially human problems. So, to give an illustration of that, um, Uh, uh, Some of you may have been on uh, the uh, very high-speed Japanese um, uh, uh, trains. And uh, a problem for some of the uh, new trains that were being built was they were going so fast that when they entered a tunnel, uh, the air pressure was such that it created these sonic booms. And so passengers inside the train would sort of have this very uncomfortable sensation. And the problem, I think, from a physics point of view, is that you are essentially going from essentially one medium to another from one air pressure to another. Um, this is an issue that kingfishers routinely deal with when they're trying to catch fish because the kingfisher is in the air, so the kingfishers being like kookaburras, uh, the kingfisher is in the air but the fish are in the water so a kingfisher that's diving into the water um, at to do the same thing in the sea. Has a real problem making sure that the water goes um, uh, beside their um, uh, their bill, and, but doesn't push the bill up into their head, in which case they no longer survive. so um, one of the engineers on the, uh, the high speed Japanese trains happened also to be an ornithologist and uh, a, and the story goes brought the two things together. So the very pointy front end of these high speed Japanese trains have elements to them that are very similar to the beaks. of of kingfishers and this allows not only the train to avoid having the problem of a sonic boom every time it goes into a tunnel but it also turns out that it's more efficient, goes faster and uses less fuel so we're developing, I mean I love that story but there are lots and lots of other stories that sit around uh, how people have been inspired by billions of years of tinkering um, and in particular billions of years in which success is built on failure, and uh, I understand that that's uh, critical for design projects and engineering products, Um, that uh, there are probably heaps of solutions out there to problems that we've faced um, and and provides, I suppose, in part a, a modest justification for doing the kinds of things that we do.
3: And I'd like to pick up on the interdisciplinary influences uh, on law and talk about law and aesthetics, because if we are to bring a sense of wonder uh, that that often brings us to that impulse uh, for environmental protection and and better recognition of nature, then we need to think about not just giving quite sterile legal frameworks uh, (coughs) that don't address what we sometimes call the effective ideas behind it. So there's been a strong movement in the law and aesthetics area, for example, to start thinking about um, engaging with art, with music, with design, and in fact there's a lot of um, work being done cross disciplinary between law and design at the moment, to bring those sorts of understandings into, for example, um, thinking about processes for endangered species or habitat. How, for example, should a court or an international court or how should... um, a government tribunal or government representatives at something like the World Heritage um, Convention meetings, how should they think about bringing those emotions, those design principles, that alternative thinking into what has been a very technical law space? So that's some of the work that's going on at the moment. And my PhD student, Alice Palmer, has uh, expertise both as uh, a lawyer. She headed... um Um, an international environmental advocacy group for many years but she also has uh, a background in art and aesthetics so she's bringing those sorts of understandings to think about how images of environment which are the basis for example for a whole range of protections such as world heritage protections how they might be better understood and interpreted in these international legal forums so that we have a better sense of the way in which which, for example, treaty interpretation might include some of those connections to place and our emotive response to nature that needs to be a driving force if we are to expand protections. Fantastic.
2: That... Sounds like a good place to finish up. However, if you still have a few questions for the panel, um, Mark and and Lee have kindly um, agreed that they'll they'll hang around for another five or so minutes. So please come up and have a chat with them. If you could thank our panel um, today, that'd be fantastic. And thank and thank you to all of you for your fantastic questions and engagement today. Thank you.
0: This has been a production of Climactic, a podcast collective helping local communities tell their extraordinary stories. It's our mission to help elevate the voices of the everyday heroes we're surrounded by and inspire, sustain, and motivate the climate community. We love working with local environmental groups, individuals, nonprofits, and social enterprises. So if you've got a story to tell, please just get in touch. The Climactic Collective is Mark Spencer, Rich Bowden, Maxine Baisley, Georgia Scheel, and Bronwyn Gresham. Our producer is Hazel Fiticaro Our digital design is by Rose Fidicara. Our Climactic theme is produced by Greg Drassi, and our logo, designed by Abigail Hawkins. We're also pleased to feature the music of the General Assembly. Thank you for listening to Climactic, the podcast for our climactic times.
4: Climactic Collective Collective.